On Thursday, Madison Square Garden Company boss James Dolan announced that the Radio City Rockettes had agreed to perform at the Trump inauguration. And a bunch of the Rockettes sort of went off their rockers. One Rockette wrote, quote, I usually don't use social media to make a political stand, but I feel overwhelmed with emotion. Finding out that it has been decided for us that Rockettes will be performing at the presidential inauguration makes me feel embarrassed and disappointed. The women I work with are intelligent, are full of love, and the decision of performing for a man that stands for everything we're against is appalling. I am speaking for just myself, but please know, after we found out this news, we have been performing with tears in our eyes and heavy hearts, which makes the show really crappy. We will not be forced. Hashtag not my president. George Takei, who's an ardent Trump opponent, and Sulu, of course, from the old Star Trek, he tweeted in their support... And here's what he tweeted. The members of the Rockettes in the Mormon tabernacle are like all of us, forced to go along with something horrible they didn't choose. I mean, like half the country did actually choose Trump and actually pretty much everybody chose to live here. And it's a peaceful transition of power that happens every four years. But, you know, meanwhile, Anthony Bourdain has announced he won't eat at any restaurant hosted at Trump Tower. Fashion icon André Leontali has said he won't dress Melania Trump anymore. Artists whose products hang in Ivanka Trump's apartment have asked her to remove their art. They have not asked for her to give back the money. Suddenly, it seems, the left has discovered freedom of association. After years of telling religious people they had a moral and legal obligation to throw out their religion and service same-sex weddings and provide contraception and fund abortion, now the left realizes the ability to pick and choose those to whom you give your services is actually kind of important. But don't expect it to last. Of course, artists should be able to turn down clients. So should religious bakers. But you won't see the left acknowledge that. The only freedom to turn down clients is the freedom for leftists to turn down conservative and religious clients, not the other way around. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. All right, tons to get to here today on the very last Ben Shapiro Show broadcast of the year. And then we're on a a long break, actually, because we're out next week for for Christmas uh, because you Christians. And then we're we're out the following week because of me, because I'm going on vacation with my wife. So it's going to be a long break. So enjoy this one. Savor every last delicious morsel of knowledge and information, of humor and insight that comes to you, courtesy of this right here, this big brain. But... First, you have to say hello to our advertisers over at Ring.com. So if you are concerned about burglary, I I know I am, actually. (laughs) My wife is kind of paranoid about burglary. Uh, We've had some security issues in the past. Ring.com makes sure that you don't have a lot of these security problems anymore because most burglaries are not just somebody breaking into your house. They usually happen when somebody rings the doorbell, and then they realize nobody's home, and then they break into your house. Well, the Ring.com system, it has a camera on it. They ring the doorbell, and you can pick up and say that you're at home no matter where you are. You can see who's there without actually being at home. Fantastic system. One of our advertisers on whom I actually spend my own money uh, for additional product. They have the, this ring of security kit they're selling now. It's a, a ring video doorbell for the front door, a ring stick-up cam, a wireless weatherproof HD camera, and that keeps an eye on other parts of your property. And you can install these things in minutes. They are very easy to install. I've done it myself. And again, we've, we use it all the time. It's, it's great because I have kids at home and a nanny, and, and I want to know what's going on when somebody rings the doorbell, and that's what Ring.com does for me. Ring.com slash Ben, and you get $150 off that ring of security kit. Terrific product. And make sure that you go to ring.com slash Ben. Use the slash Ben so they know that we sent you as well as you getting the discount. Okay, so the big news today, the big news today is that Barack Obama ain't like them Jews. Uh, he, he, he's not fond of the Jewish state. Uh, he thinks that uh, the Jews are, are apparently troublesome in the Middle East. This is nothing new. I'm old enough to remember when I appeared on Fox News in 2014 and said this was a Jew-hating administration uh, because they were attempting to cut off weapons supplies to Israel in the middle of their war against Hamas. Well, today, uh, Obama has revived a, in an Egypt, originally Egypt-pushed UN resolution that was designed to undercut Israel's claims to really exist in the Middle East. This, this UN resolution is now about to be voted on at the UN Security Council, and Barack Obama is the guy who decided to bring it to fruition because he signaled to everybody that, that the United States would abstain. Now, the United States has always had Israel's back at the UN Security Council, uh, even during some of the even during some of the early Obama years. But they no longer do, and it's been clear for a while that Obama despises Israel and sees Israel as a as a moral and as a foreign policy threat, a regional threat to peace in the Middle East. He's constantly been putting pressure on Israel. So this UN resolution draft, and I want to go through it because I think that it's important to actually know what people are talking about. Uh, this draft that's being circulated, Obama has basically said they're going to abstain, uh, and it's very clear that they are uh, that they are 
interested in slapping Israel as they leave. That's that's the goal here is to slap Israel uh, as as hard as they can before they leave because Trump, by all indicators, is going to be very pro-Israel coming in. His ambassador to Israel is great. Uh, yesterday, he pressured Israel to act. He pressured Egypt apparently behind the scenes to withdraw the resolution, and then Obama apparently went behind the scenes, according to Israel, and pressured Venezuela and Senegal and New Zealand to re-sponsor the resolution in the Security Council, which demonstrates how disgusting they are. So here is what this draft resolution says. This is the draft that was going around yesterday. The Security Council reaffirms that the establishment by Israel of settlements in the Palestinian territory occupied since 1967, including East Jerusalem, has no legal validity and constitutes a flagrant violation under international law and a major obstacle to the achievement of the two-state solution and a just, lasting, and comprehensive peace, reiterates their demand that Israel immediately completely cease all settlement activities in the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem, and that it fully respects all of its legal obligations in this regard underlines it will not recognize any changes to the June 4th, 1967 lines, including with regard to Jerusalem, other than those agreed by the parties through negotiation. So, in other words, what they are saying here, I mean, this is really quite disgusting. What they're saying here is that Israel has no claim in East Jerusalem. That's what they're saying. Okay, East Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. East and West Jerusalem is one unified city, the holiest spot in Judaism, which predates Islam by a solid 1,500 years. The only reason that Muslims care about Jerusalem is because the Jews did first. The only reason Christians care about Jerusalem is because the Jews did first. The Jews were there first. It is the center of Jewish life. It is the center of Jewish thought. It is the center of Zionism. It has long been the dream for 3,000 years. It's been the dream to have a Jewish capital in Jerusalem. That was that, that dream was fulfilled in 1967 after Arabs attacked Israel and Israel responded. All of this resolution is false. So, for example, they say that these are settlements in Palestinian territory occupied since 67. There was no such thing as Palestinian territory in 1967. You know why? Because Jordan was in charge of Jerusalem. Egypt was in charge of the Gaza Strip. Okay, there was no Palestinian government. There was no Palestinian people. All of this was a fiction that was created in the aftermath of 1948. The Palestine Liberation Organization was created to destroy Israel between 48 and 67. Not to liberate East Jerusalem, but to liberate Tel Aviv, right? To destroy Tel Aviv. That's why they were calling for the liberation of Israel before Israel had any control over East Jerusalem whatsoever. These are not Israeli settlements in Palestinian territories. This is Israeli building in territories that are disputed. And those disputed territories, by the way, Jordan doesn't claim ownership of those territories. Israel took those territories, annexed them. Jordan renounced all claim to those territories in 1988. And the Palestinians had no claim to those territories before 1967. So the language here doesn't even make any sense. Plus, it is always a great irony of history that the Arabs over and over and over rejected Israeli peace deals, rejected UN partition plans, and then claimed that those lines should be the final partition plan lines, even after they rejected them, launch war against Israel and lose. That's not the way international relations works. Beyond that, the idea that Jews building an extra bathroom in East Jerusalem is a threat to peace ignores the fact that the goal of the Palestinian government, which is a unity government between the terrorist group Hamas, the terrorist group Islamic Jihad, and the terrorist group the Palestinian Authority, that tripartite unity terrorist government, their goal forever has been the outright genocide of Jews in the state of Israel. It's amazing to me that everybody always talks about how nasty the Jews are to the Israeli Arabs. By the way, polls show Israeli Arabs don't want to leave. There's a reason they're not moving to Palestinian territories. But what's amazing is the focus on how Jews treat Arabs in Israel. How many Jews live in the Palestinian territories, like the ones that the Palestinians actually administer and control? Zero. Right? The fact is that the Palestinians would murder Jews who lived there. In fact, after the Jews pulled out of the Gaza Strip and they left all their nice greenhouses and their nice homes, the Palestinians immediately came in and burned them. So what, the, what actually the UN is calling for here is to make all of these areas where Jews live, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Jews, making them Judenrein, ethnically cleansing the Jews there, pushing them out, killing them if they stay. That's what the UN is talking about here. And Barack Obama is going right along with this because Barack Obama sees Israel as the great threat. He has for his entire presidency. He has for his entire presidency. Here's a brief history of Barack Obama on Israel and his, his administration. And I would remind everybody, that some of the commentators that the left likes to quote, people like Jeffrey Goldberg at The Atlantic. Jeffrey Goldberg at The Atlantic was, was openly acknowledged inside the Obama White House as a show for President Obama. In 2008, Jeffrey Goldberg actually wrote, before Obama was elected, that any Jew who had concerns about Obama being anti-Jewish and anti-Israel was a racist. Right? That guy is a respected voice on the international left. 
and in America as well. By the way, a quick side note here. Chuck Schumer has come out, and he's condemned this resolution. He says that, that Obama should veto it. This is the same game that Chuck Schumer always plays. Chuck Schumer uh, is both Jewish and has a lot of Jewish constituents in New York. He's afraid of ticking them off, but he's playing good cop to Obama's bad cop. He's not going to do anything. And what's he going to do? He's not going to join any resolution to remove funding from the U.N. Human Rights Commission or from the U.N. Security Council. But here's a, a brief history. For those who don't believe that Obama has anti-Israel animus, and there are people on the left who, who actually believe this because they are willfully blinding themselves. You know, Buzzfeed, BuzzFeed's Ben Smith came out today and he says, Israel is really taking an openly anti-Obama line. It's like, what, where the hell have you been for the last eight years, dude? Where have you been? We'll go through the history in a second. Israel, by the way, has condemned this, and they say directly, Obama and Kerry are behind this shameful move against Israel at the UN. The U.S. administration secretly cooked up with the Palestinians an extreme anti-Israel resolution behind Israel's back, which would be a tailwind for terror and boycotts and effectively make the Western Wall occupied Palestinian territory, which is true. Remember, the Western Wall, which it's always funny. People always say that's the holiest site in Judaism. It isn't. Okay, the Temple Mount is the holiest site in Judaism, the part that the Islamic Waqf prevents Jews from standing on. That's the part that's the holiest site. The Western Wall is just the outer border of that. But in any case, the fact is that, that you have Senator Schumer urging this to be, to be rejected, and he, he issued a strong statement saying, whatever anyone's views are on settlement, anyone who cares about the future of Israel and peace in the region knows the UN with its one-sidedness is exactly the wrong forum to bring about peace. Yeah, what's he going to do about it? But here is a brief history of Obama on Israel. February 2008, Obama rips the Likud party, even though Likud isn't in power. June 2008. Obama says that Jerusalem should be unified Jewish territory in Israel. He says that at AIPAC, and then within 24 hours reverses himself and says that it shouldn't remain undivided. March 2009, now Obama's president. The Obama administration rejoins the anti-Semitic, anti-Jew UN Human Rights Council, while, by the way, fully acknowledging its anti-Semitism. They say, sure, the UN Human Rights Council is anti-Semitic, but... You know, no biggie. May 2009, Obama tells Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, settlements have to be stopped in order for us to move forward with a peace deal. Netanyahu immediately announces a freeze on settlements. Obama rips Israel anyway. June 2009, Obama goes to Cairo, says that Israel was only founded because of the Holocaust, and then says that Palestinian treatment at the hands of Jews is sort of like the Holocaust. July 2009, Obama threatens openly to put daylight between the United States and Israel. September 2009, Obama says America does not accept the legitimacy of continued Israeli settlements, as though the United States really has a role to play here. March 2010, VP Joe Biden visits Israel, rips Netanyahu again, not just for settlements, but for what we call natural growth in the settlements, which means that you want to build an extra bedroom because you had an additional kid. Vice President Joe Biden didn't want Israel to be able to do that. Hillary apparently calls up Netanyahu. She's then Secretary of State. She calls up Netanyahu and screams at him for an hour on the phone. Later that month, when Netanyahu visits the White House, Obama forces him to leave through a side entrance. June 2010, a U.S. defense source leaks and kills Israel's plans to work with the Saudis to strike the Iranian nuclear facilities. May 2011, the State Department labels Jerusalem not a part of Israel. My niece, who was born in, in Jerusalem, currently her passport just says Jerusalem. They refuse to put Israel on it, even though Jerusalem is the eternal capital of the Jewish people. And again, the only reason anyone gives a rip about Jerusalem is because of the Jews. November 2011, Nicholas Sarkozy is caught on a hot mic telling Obama, quote, about, about Netanyahu, I can't stand him, he's a liar. And Obama says, you're tired of him? What about me? I have to deal with him every day. December 2011, Israel compares Israel to Iran. Hillary compares Israel to Iran. February 2012, Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta kills a potential Israeli strike on Iran by talking about it openly with the Washington Post. March 2012, the Obama administration leaks plans for Israel to work with Azerbaijan to strike the Iranian nuclear facilities, killing the deal. June 2012, the Obama administration leaks that Israel was behind the Stuxnet virus, which was designed to kill Iran's nuclear program. December 2012, Hillary Clinton says Israel, Israel has a lack of empathy for Palestinians and calls them an oppressed people. March 2013, Obama, are you getting a, a, a message here? Maybe Obama isn't fond of the Jewish state. You getting that? March 2013, Obama forces Benjamin Netanyahu to call the Islamist Turkish dictator Tayyip Recep Erdogan to apologize for stopping a terrorist flotilla 
from entering the Gaza Strip and helping out Hamas. June 2013, the Obama administration leaked specific information regarding Israeli Arrow 3 anti-ballistic missile sites. That information had been classified. Obama had to apologize and blame it on low-level staffers. June 2014, three three Jewish teens are kidnapped, including an American, and they are murdered by Hamas. The Obama administration calls on Israel for restraint and says it will continue to fund the Palestinian terrorist unity government, including Hamas. August 2014, Obama personally steps in and attempts to block shipments from the Pentagon of weapons to Israel. October 2014, Jeffrey Goldberg releases an article quoting Obama officials calling Prime Minister Netanyahu a chicken bleep. January 15th, Obama deploy, 2015, Obama deploys his campaign team to defeat Netanyahu in Israel. And finally, of course, Obama attempts to sign this Iranian nuclear deal, which endangers Israel's very existence. So yes, this has been a long time coming. Of course, Obama on his way out slaps Israel because he sees Israel as a Western imperialist outpost in historically Muslim lands. And he wants to see it go down in flames while simultaneously making Iran a regional power. There is no other reason to do this. This resolution achieves the, the desired impact of allowing momentum to attempted boycotts of Israel. It achieves the desired impact of providing a basis, a logical basis, for Arabs to murder innocent Jews. It's disgusting on every level. And I have to make a statement about the timing here. Uh, the good news, uh, I, I have to say, God has a sense of humor. So Obama, of course, sponsors this thing and pushes this thing right on the verge of Hanukkah. Hey, Hanukkah, for those who don't know the story of Hanukkah, the story of Hanukkah is about Antiochus, who is a, a Greek king, and he had installed as the head of the temple one of his emissaries who proceeded to basically strip all of the vestments from the temple and ship them out, who proceeded to tax the Jews pretty harshly and also ban all religious practice. The Jews led a rebellion against Antiochus in order to take back the temple and in order to restore Judaism to Jerusalem. Right. The day before we celebrate we have modern-day Antiochuses in the UN attempting to strip Jewish sovereignty from Jerusalem, strip it of its religious character, pretend that it has nothing to do with Judaism. And guess what? This time the Maccabees are in charge, folks. Okay, the Jews are not giving up Jerusalem. The Israelis are not giving up Jerusalem. And no matter what a bunch of pathetic, disgusting dictatorships. I mean, it's, it's Senegal and, and Venezuela sponsoring this thing. Venezuela, they're literally shooting dogs in the streets to eat them because it is a socialist dictatorship. And Senegal right now is threatening openly to invade its neighbor. Does the UN Security Council do anything about that? Of course not. Instead, they look at this resolution that is sponsored and they attempt to, uh, to push it against Israel. Don't worry. Uh, God stands with the Jews when it comes to standing up for Judaism in Jerusalem. And uh, Israel is not going to cave on anything like this. By the way, for people who claim that the UN has any moral legitimacy, all I can say is Lindsey Graham is uh, in favor of if this, if this resolution is passed uh, with U.S. abstention. And Lindsey Graham says that we should withdraw all funding from the UN. If that's the result, I'm in favor of the resolution. Anything that results in funding being withdrawn from the UN, I can live with. The UN has always been a Jew-hating bastion. There are 193 countries in the UN. Well over 50 of them are Muslim dictatorships. That doesn't even include all of the various foreign dictatorships that ally with the Muslim dictatorships, border the Muslim dictatorships, or are anti-Semitic in their own right, like some of the countries of Europe. The UN Human Rights Council, of the first 103 resolutions of the UN Human Rights Council... 56 of them were dedicated to ripping Israel. There are, more, there are more resolutions in the UN against Israel than against North Korea and Syria combined in 2016. The fact that anybody takes the UN seriously demonstrates what a joke this is. The same leftists who are complaining about Trump threatening NATO, which I agree is a bad thing, are completely silent about the United Nations, which threatens sovereignty of individual countries and interferes in peace deals in order to boost the worst people on planet Earth. Barack Obama, his administration, this is an anti-Semitic administration. You cannot stand in favor of Arab terror against Israelis. And you can't be silent when American Jews get killed in Israel. And for, and, and for me not to assume that there's an animus there. Of course there's an animus there. This policy is anti-Semitic. This policy is anti-Israel. It is dedicated to the destruction of the Jewish state. Because the same logic that says that this is historically, that Jerusalem is historically not Jewish. Let me tell you something. If East Jerusalem it doesn't belong to the Jews, neither does Tel Aviv. It's like saying Washington, D.C. doesn't belong to the Americans. It makes it very difficult to make the case that Podunk, Iowa does if Washington, D.C. doesn't. So that's what's going on uh, over all this. By the way, I, I, and I should mention that it is amazing where the U.N. decides to put its focus. It's, there's slaughter occurring in Syria on, on the level of hundreds of thousands of people. No U.N. resolutions on that because Russia will veto anything that comes up 
Russia is more strongly allied with Syria than the United States under Barack Obama is allied with Israel, which should tell you something. I mean, the, the atrocities that are currently occurring are unbelievable. I mean, and, and, and the fact that, that Barack Obama is providing fodder to the worst people on earth, it shouldn't come as a shock, but it is morally shocking. And here's just an example. There's a video that came out yesterday. We'll play it in a second. Uh, I, I want to wait to play this for, for just a second, but I'm going to show you a second, uh, in a second a, a video showing a fanatic Muslim lecturing his kids about the virtue of jihad. Um, and apparently this is, uh, this is coming from Syria. So these are the people who the West is at war with, but Obama prefers to ignore that. We'll play that video in just a second. But first, we have to say hello to a new advertiser. There's this, this podcast you should take a listen to. I, I love listening to other podcasts, not just my own, my own. I actually don't listen to my own frequently, but uh, I love listening to podcasts. One of the podcasts that you should definitely take a listen to is they've started creating these entertainment podcasts. And there's one called Terms. And it's really kind of fun. It's a, it's a fictional podcast. You can get it at iTunes, Stitcher, Wondery.com, wherever you listen to podcasts. And they have new episodes every Monday. It's a political thriller, basically. It's really well produced. It's really fun to listen to. Uh, it's, it's the, the plot is, is essentially that America has voted in one of its most controversial presidents, and the outgoing president attempts to hold on to power. So you can sort of see where this is going. But you really can't because it's unpredictable and it's really good. Uh, direct listeners... Uh, can subscribe at least uh, three times, you know, I think right now, if you if you are a direct listener uh, and you subscribe three times right now, uh, you can you can get a discount if, if you have to pay for that. I don't think you have to pay for it, actually. I think this is free. So new episodes drop every Monday. Uh, check that out. And uh, it's it's called Terms, again. Uh, the, the URL is smarturl.it slash termssp. So it's a little bit complicated, so we'll say it one more time. Smarturl.it slash terms P. Slash terms P. Okay, so it's Terms Podcast. That's what it is, Terms P. So go check it out. Subscribe. comes out every Monday, and it's a really good podcast, really entertaining. Okay, so I want to play you this video to leave you with a sense of just how morally perverse the American left is, the international left is. Here is a, uh, here's a video of a fanatic Muslim informing his children about what to do uh, when they are confronted with Westerners. What are you going to do? To commit suicide. These are two little girls, if you can't see this, you're just listening. Two very small girls wearing full burqa, basically. Damascus, but you're only nine years old. Did all of them flee in the green buses? You're going to kill them. What did he say? But don't worry, the real, the, real focus, the real focus here has to be on Israel. Clearly the focus has to be on Israel. Not on Iran, not on ISIS, not on jihadism, not on the terror that exists. Hamas, by the way, Hamas, Hezbollah, Israel's enemies are the West's enemies. Israel is part of the West. This is what Obama's been spending eight years doing, trying to divide Israel off from the West so they don't have to acknowledge that Israel fights the same enemies because that would destroy Obama's, Obama's belief that Israel is the great victimizer in the region. Uh, and uh, it, it's true. It's a demonstration of, of just how disgusting Obama is, how disgusting this administration is. I cannot wait for them to leave. And good for Donald Trump. Good on Donald Trump. Donald Trump yesterday came out and, uh, and openly called for Obama to veto this thing. I'm hoping that Trump comes out today and threatens to withdraw U.N. funding if, the, if, if, uh, if, Obama, doesn't, if, if Obama doesn't veto this thing. Uh, but so far, all indicators are that Trump is going to be very pro-Israel. Uh, and good for him on that. Good for him because he was sort of a, a little bit of a Rorschach test during the election cycle, and uh, he is exceeding my expectations wildly on this. And so I celebrate him for doing that. Good for good for Donald Trump. Okay, so that's that's as far as we can go with the live broadcast. But if you want to view the rest of the podcast, we have a lot more coming up, including the mailbag. Go to dailywire.com. Do that. Eight dollars a month will buy you a subscription to Daily Wire. Dot com. You can also get an annual subscription. That annual subscription will allow you to get a copy of my book, True Allegiance, signed just for you. You can frame it, put it on your bookshelf, treasure it forever, hand it on to your, to your, your children and your grandchildren. They can keep it in the family. In a thousand years, it'll be valuable. But you can get it right now at dailywire.com if you subscribe. Plus, we have a lot of great new services coming out next year. They're going to launch next year. And uh, we can't wait for you to join us there at dailywire.com. We are the largest conservative podcast in the United States. So, meanwhile, while the left is, is not 
super concerned about Barack Obama destroying the Middle Eastern fragile, tenuous balance that currently exists, uh, they are very concerned that Donald Trump is going to blow up the world. So they're, they're very upset about all of this. Uh, Donald Trump tweeted something yesterday. And here, here's what Donald Trump tweeted. He tweeted, the United States must greatly strengthen and expand its nuclear capability until such time as the world comes to its senses regarding nukes. I don't know what this means. I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be frank with you. I don't have any idea what any of this means. This is absolute word salad to me. I don't know what it means to strengthen and expand nuclear capability. Does he mean building new nukes? Does he just mean updating the old nukes, which is totally fine? I don't know what it means. What, what does it mean for the world to come to its senses regarding nukes? Like, well, I, don't even, I don't even get that. Like, well, what, is, what is that even supposed to mean? It doesn't have any meaning. But if, it, if there is no meaning, the left loses their mind. So the left has decided that this is the scariest thing that ever was. Now, it doesn't help that Donald Trump, I'm not sure, knows what he's talking about. So Trump uh, was, on, was on, I think it was MSNBC this morning, uh, or actually he had spoken with, with Mika Brzezinski from MSNBC. And here's what Mika Brzezinski said that Trump meant by that tweet. Mika asked the president-elect while we had the opportunity uh, what his position was on uh, trying to clarify mm -hmm. the tweet yesterday regarding uh, the nuclear arsenal, and the president-elect told you what? Let it be an arms race. We will outmatch them at every pass. And outlast them all. And outlast them all. All right, you can find his so, breaking news. There you go. Mm -hmm. Check. So you can see that... that we're, we're, it, it's always great, by the way, when, when your news is being announced by people wearing pajamas in front of an open fire. That's just something I think it demonstrates the seriousness of our politics when you've got when you've got Mika Brzezinski in a onesie telling in pajama boys pajamas from the campaign in 2012, telling us about uh, about what Donald Trump means by these nuke tweets. So arms race with whom is the first question, like. Why would we start an arms race with anybody? We have more nuclear weapons than anybody. We've spent more on the military than all the other countries on Earth combined. I mean, our military – when people talk about the U.S. military being weak, that's relative, okay? It's weaker than it used to be. But let's put it this way. If we were in some sort of actual shooting war with China that did not involve nuclear weapons, that war ends within about three months. Okay, the United States military is by far the most powerful force on planet Earth. I'm not sure why we need an arms race. Uh, Charlie Hurt, who's uh, – a, a, a big fan of the Trump administration. He was on Fox News, and he tried to explain also what Trump meant by this tweet. What yeah. must China be thinking, though, Charlie? <laughs> you know, China is sitting here trying to, and, and we, we've talked about the madman doctrine and whether or not Trump is trying to seem like an unpredictable, crazy person. And with a pick like Peter Navarro, who has been so vocal, uh, is such a vocal opponent to the Chinese model of trade, that they must be going, what are the next four years going to be like for us? I think us? that being perceived as a madman is, is crucial to the art of the deal. And I think, and Donald Trump obviously operates like that. So and the Chinese have to understand you that. Okay, well, that's not great when it comes to nukes. I mean, presumably what you actually want is a hard and fast nuclear policy, right, which says we will retaliate if nukes are used against us uh, and we will preemptively use nukes if nukes are fired upon us, right? I mean, that, that's the idea here. But the, but the idea that, um, that you want unpredictability when it comes to nuclear war, that's probably not the best thing. So Kellyanne Conway's on TV, and she's trying to, she's trying to explain what Trump meant by this. See, what's, what's funny is that when Trump tweets, it, it, there's no question this is confusing stuff. There's no question that, that no one knows what the hell this means. I'm not even sure Trump knows what he means by this. My guess is that he did some sort of intel briefing. Somebody said to him, you need to update the nuclear arsenal. And instead of him saying, we will be updating the nuclear arsenal in accordance with our national security needs, he tweeted nuclear capability until such time as the world comes to his senses. That's, that's sort of Trumpian just blather, I think. Um, but watch Kellyanne Conway try to explain the exact tweet instead of just saying what I just said. He's saying we're going to expand our nuclear capability. He's not so necessarily that's, saying that. He, he, did, he did. He did well, literally say we need and, to expand and he may our is, nuclear and he may capability. Is present. What, he's saying is, what he's saying is we need to expand our nuclear capability, really our nuclear readiness or our capability to be ready for those who also have nuclear weapons. I mean, this is what happens. When you say that terrorism, particularly ISIS, radical Islamic terrorists, are, are being contained, they're the JV team, we don't have to worry about them anymore, and then people are being killed in Nice, in Berlin this week, certainly in Orlando at the nightclub in May, in San, San Bernardino a year ago, in Paris, in Brussels. It doesn't ring true to anybody that they're not advancing. It doesn't ring true to anybody. What does that have to do with nuclear weapons? It's, I'm going to give you the analogy. That just saying it doesn't make it true. In other words, us saying they're contained and then them attacking proves that proves everybody who feels unsafe in a world where terrorists and particularly in the case of ISIS are advancing that they're still they're still willing to do their harm so us he's trying to in his 
I think in his quest to keep us safe and secure, he's putting the world on notice that he will do what he thinks he needs to do to keep us safe and secure. By expanding our nuclear capability. But, but I mean, he's not trying to change a policy through Twitter, and he's not trying to he's okay. not trying to project what he will do as president. What he's merely saying is that you know this is a man who gets his. Okay, I'm sorry. This is this is such. I mean, this is just mashed potatoes. Uh, it, it may, it, what she's saying here makes no sense. Uh, Sean Spicer did what the right thing here. He said, look, there's not going to be a nuclear arms race. This is what they should have said all along, okay? This is why Trump should not tweet. But, well, we'll talk about the media's overreaction in just a second. In terms of building up our nuclear capabilities with, I guess, against Russia, let it be an arms race because we will outmatch them at every pass and outlast them all. What does let it be an arms race mean? Well, I, I think it goes back to what I just said with respect to the tweet that he put out. He is going to do what it takes to protect this country. And if another country or countries want to threaten our safety or sovereignty, he's going to do what it sure, takes. Sure, but he's not waiting until another country threatens us. He's making these He's making it very clear. No, right, but he's making it very clear that other countries and other companies, you've seen with Carrier and other, he's going to make it clear that he will be an active president that will get things done. Meaning he will use nuclear weapons if no, need no, be. He will, he will not take anything off the table. What it means is that he's not going to sit back and let another country act. He needs to send a clear and concise message, which he's done, that he is going to be a president that defends America's interests and defends the American people. So you don't see these words as any sort of escalation? No, absolutely not. They're, they're, it, it is him articulating how he is going to be as president. You know, we've been cautioned and warned through the election not to take him literally. Remember all of that, that we and the media took him too literally? When are we supposed to take him literally? Well, I, I don't know that I would agree with that. I think you do take him literally. So we okay, take so again, every this tweet. Is, it's, 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 it's a bit of a mess. It really is. What probably happened, the other alternative explanation here is that Vladimir Putin said yesterday in a big speech in Russia that he was going to dramatically escalate the nuclear capacity of the Russian arsenal. And so Trump, because he can never be outdone, immediately tweeted back, basically subtweeted Putin. Uh, and so we now have nuclear-armed countries subtweeting at each other, which is just kind of awesome. Now, now is any of this stuff where, where you think, okay, Trump's going to launch nukes? It's super scary. We're all going to die. No, I don't think so. I think that Trump can tweet what he wants. In the end, I think cooler heads are going to prevail on stuff like this. And I think the left likes to exaggerate the threat here. I think the left likes to make it seem like, okay, Trump hit a tweet about nukes. That's the same thing as him turning the nuclear key. No, it really isn't. And the same left that will take him super duper literally and seriously when it comes to this, they'll look the other way when it comes to the Obama administration basically enabling Iran to gain a nuclear weapon. They'll look the other way when it comes to the, the Obama administration undermining support with a crucial ally like Israel. The same people who went nuts over Donald Trump picking up the phone from Taiwan have suddenly determined that it is the end of the world if, 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 if that it's nothing. It's a big nothing if Barack Obama undermines relations with Israel. It's, uh, again, the media is overplaying its hand here. Are these real questions that should be asked? Yes. Does it look like a policy? No. Should Donald Trump stop it? Please, for the love of God, Donald, just stop. Like, just stop. Like, is, is this really worth it? Is it really worthwhile to put out vague tweets that nobody knows what they mean? And then we have to spend two weeks debunking what the tweet means. And then we have all your defenders come out and say that it was the most genius tweet that ever was. And all your detractors come out and say it was really stupid. Why don't we just, like, cut it out? How about this? How about you put out, like, an actual cohesive policy? Or, I don't know, think for five seconds before you hit tweet. You know, it's, it's, it's really silly. Meanwhile, the leftists aren't going to give Trump any benefit of the doubt at all. Uh, it is, it is uh, an amazing story. Democratic women apparently have been unfriending people on social media. Uh, and it is uh, – I, I do love this story. The, the people who claim that they are bastions of tolerance and loveliness, uh, these are the same people who now say that they have no interest in being friends with anybody who disagrees with them politically. And uh, that's, that's pretty funny. So apparently there's, there's also a story that a sex therapist from right here in Los Angeles where we broadcast is claiming that Hillary-supporting women have lost their libido over the Trump victory. They're no longer having sex with their husbands because of Donald Trump, which is it doesn't say a lot for your marriage. When the left goes this off their rocker, is it any shock that they lose their minds over a, over a Trump tweet that's, that's vague and silly? Uh, not really, not too much. Okay, time for some stuff I like and then some stuff that I hate. All right, so stuff I like. Uh, it's, it's the Christmas season. 
And, uh, and therefore, and I make a point of saying it's the Christmas season because, yeah, we have a holiday, too. It's Hanukkah. I've explained it yesterday. I explained it a little bit today. Um, but Hanukkah is not a major holiday on the Jewish calendar. It's, it's one of the more minor holidays on the Jewish calendar. Whenever people try to conflate Christmas with Hanukkah and say that they are equally major, that is not true. All of our major holidays happened a few months ago, uh, and they happen again in, like, April with Passover. Uh, we have a bunch of major holidays. Those are the ones where I don't broadcast. If I'm broadcasting, then that means it's, it's a minor Jewish holiday. So during the Christmas season, a lot of questions about whether certain things are Christmas movies or not. The undoubted classic Christian, uh, Christmas movie is, of course, It's a Wonderful Life from Frank Capra, also one of the great movies of all time. And uh, we'll play a little bit of the trailer. This have you up for the re-release. What the world would be like without you. I suppose it would be better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. This is George Bailey is about to find out. You've got your wish. You've never been born. A chance to see what the world would be like without you. Now you're Ernie Bishop and you live in Bailey Park with your wife and kid. That's right, isn't it? I live in a shack in Pottersfield and I ain't never seen you before in my life. I'm going home and see my wife and family. Well, this house ain't been lived in for 20 years. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. You weren't there to save Harry. Okay, so the movie is... So what I actually like about this particular trailer is that when you ever, whenever you see people talk about It's a Wonderful Life, they talk about the warm, fuzzy side of it because it's a Capra film. Capra is a very optimistic director. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Mr. Deeds goes to town. The original, not the crappy Adam Sandler version. Uh, the... He, he did all sorts of, of very optimistic, fun movies. And people try to portray It's a Wonderful Life as that. It's a Wonderful Life is a very dark film. It's a really dark film. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 Jimmy Stewart plays a character who becomes drunk and abusive near the end of the film. Uh, the, the, the part where he actually, the part they're showing in this preview is actually only about the last third of the film. Now, the first two thirds of the film is him making decisions that he thinks are helping people, and the decisions keep backfiring on him. All these people who are sort of incompetent keep screwing him. He keeps losing life after to, uh, life, life opportunity after life opportunity, and then it finally culminates uh, in his bank going under and lots of people about to lose their homes. I did see a very funny analysis, by the way, of this of this particular film for people who have seen it, uh, which is that uh, Mr. Potter, who's the villain of the film, uh, that Mr. Potter is actually the hero of the film because Mr. Potter doesn't give subprime loans, but Jimmy Stewart does, <laughs> right? That the George Bailey gives subprime loans and nobody pays them back, and that's why the bank goes under, whereas, whereas Potter knows that you don't give loans to people who can't afford to pay them back, <laughs> which is pretty funny economic analysis. But what makes this, this Christmas movie so great uh, is the fact that it is really dark because here's the truth about religion. Religion ain't all sweetness and light, right? Hanukkah, too, is all about a bloody battle. It's actually about a bloody civil war between secular Jews and less secular Jews. Right? The Maccabees were fighting against secular Jews who were allied with Antiochus in the Seleucid Empire, and the, the Greek Seleucid Empire. It's, um, religion is not you know, all puppy dogs and, and unicorn horns and all the stuff that you see on, on Hallmark Channel. And one of the things that, that is so irritating about so much Christian film and religious film generally is that now all Christian film is basically, you know what, I can't find somebody for Christmas. And then you bring in the, and then you bring in the, the voiceover, will she find someone in time? Will she find love under the mistletoe? And then you're playing, oh, the weather outside is frightful. And some you know, cheesy thing where the girl falls into a snowbank and the guy's there with her too. And, and it, 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 it's, all, it's all crap, right? It's all pap. There's no reason to watch it. And the reason you don't watch that is because that's not what religion is about. Religion is about some very dicey questions like, is there a purpose in the universe? Questions like, why do good people suffer? Questions like, when bad things happen to good people, is that part of God's plan? Questions like, can you be redeemed from committing terrible sins? Right? These are questions that, that religion deals with, and that's what It's a Wonderful Life deals with, is, is those kinds of questions. Right? Is there a purpose in life? Is there a reason you lived, even if you have a miserable life? Why do bad things happen to good people, right? That's what that movie actually deals with, and that's why the movie's meaningful, and that's why we're watching it 70 years after it was made, 75 years after it was made. But too much religious film and too much religion generally in the United States has turned into, well, you know, on Christmas we have hot chocolate, and we, and we sit together around the fire, and we open presents, and we never contemplate religion at all. And a, a good Christmas movie is, will the single lady find love before Christmas? It, it all turns into love, actually. The worst movie ever. Okay, all, all these movies are just takeoffs on love, actually. The worst movie ever. And, and, so there, and so there's no reason for anybody to be enamored of religion. There's no reason to be enamored of Christmas or Hanukkah or any Judeo-Christian celebration. Because what the hell are you celebrating? 
You could just as easily do all of these movies as pagan films. Will the Druids find love under the trees? Right? It's just it, it's very easy to just flip it and do it that way. Unless there's some sort of, of underlying deep question that's supposed to be answered. That's why this is a Christmas movie. Now, I understand there are some people who say that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie for the very reasons that I'm expressing. All I will say is that Die Hard is very clearly a Christian allegory. Uh, because it's pretty clear that Argyle is baby Jesus. Okay, maybe it doesn't work. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe this doesn't work at all. Yeah, I, okay. I'll have to debate that another time. All I can say is, now I have a machine gun, ho, 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 is good evidence that, that, is a, that it's a Christian movie, uh, that it's a Christmas movie. Okay, time for some things I hate, then we'll get to the mailbag. Things I hate. Well, just in time for Christmas and celebration of the birth of, of Christ for Christians, uh, it's, uh, I think that it's important to notice how you know, Christians celebrate the protection of an innocent from somebody trying to hurt them versus how secular society celebrates the destruction of an innocent on behalf of social justice. So there's now this video going around of what is legitimately child abuse. Parents bragging about how their son, who is three, three years old, is transitioning into a female named Penelope. Mm-hmm. We can play that. Transgender rights have taken center stage in the American political debate, but rarely surrounding those as young as three years old. Yet that's how old Penelope was when he told his mother he was not a girl, but a boy. I'm Daniel Trotta in Brooklyn, New York, at the home of the Gardy Patterson family, whose eight-year-old child Penelope was assigned female at birth. But the parents noticed Penelope had some behavioral problems, a dark personality, the mother says. Finally, one day, the mother, Jody Patterson, asked her child what was wrong. Like, why are you so angry? And he had a very clear answer to that, which was um, because everyone thinks I'm a girl, and I'm not. Um, so I thought, I said, you know, sure, Penelope, however you feel inside is fine. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, what's inside counts. And then Penelope looked at me and said, no, Mama, I don't, I don't feel like a boy. I am a boy. Well, far from a consensus, some clinicians who work with transgender children have concluded that when kids persistently identify as the non-conforming gender, the best course is to socially transition or live as the other gender, even at age three. Okay, these are the, and we call those people idiots. Uh, the fact is that a child at three years old doesn't know anything about gender. The reason I say this is because I have a three-year-old. Okay, a year ago, my, my daughter was very into boy things, which is not uncommon, right? She really liked buses. She really liked trucks. And now it turns out she really, really likes dresses, like a lot. In fact, this morning I got up and she wanted to be taken out of her PJs and she wanted to be put in the fanciest dress that we own with her ruby slippers from, from The Wizard of Oz. There is a genetic component to gender. In fact, it is the only component to gender. Okay, the idea that you have a small child and the small child who's three says, I am a boy. First of all, th this makes no sense. Let me just explain why this makes no sense. If I say today, I feel like I am a chicken, right? I am a chicken. How would you even know? Right? How would I know what it's like to be a chicken? I've never been a chicken. It's impossible for me to be a chicken. It is not possible for a girl to be a boy. It is not possible for a boy to be a girl. No matter how much you say you feel like a member of the opposite sex, it's like saying you're a member of a different species, okay? You can't just say that you're a member of a different species because the fact is you don't know what it's like to be a member of that species. If a, if a child says, I'm a boy, probably at three years old, the child is actually saying, I like boy things, right? I like trucks. I like, I like, the, I like things that boys play with. I like basketball. Does that mean the child is actually a boy? No, maybe it means that the, the child is just a tomboy, we used to call kids tomboys sometimes. Does it mean that Penelope's actually a dude? No, of course not. And is the best solution, I, I presume, that when this kid hits age, they'll put in puberty blockers and prevent this, this young girl from becoming a, a young woman. They'll put in puberty blockers and screw this kid up for life. The fact is that 80%, 80% of all children who identify as the opposite gender grow out of it by the time they hit adulthood. And yet there's this societal pressure now that the minute your kid says, I'm a member of a different gender, we all say, oh, well, I guess you're a member of a different gender. You know better than science does. You know better than genetics does. You know better than the parents do. It's also why it's so dangerous for society to play this game where it is possible for it to be a solution for boys to become girls and girls to become boys. Number one, you're confusing kids. They're now trying to teach kids that boys can become girls and girls can become boys. Kids are very confused people. They're very confused little people. The idea that, that small children are capable of handling complex issues is just ridiculous. And so if you tell a little girl, by the way, you can be a boy. How many little girls do you think will say, you know what? I am a boy now. 
because I've been told it's okay for me to identify as a boy. And beyond that, how many parents are going to think it's morally virtuous for them to go get psychiatric counseling for a girl who says he's a boy, says she's a boy, and then pretend that that psychiatric counseling legitimates the movement from girl to boy? How many kids are going to get screwed up by this? The answer is a lot. The answer is a lot of kids are going to be screwed up by this. And it's a real tragedy. This is child abuse. And the fact the media celebrate this without any scientific backing whatsoever. The same people, by the way, who say that you can be a girl stuck in a boy's body say there are no differences between girls and boys. So how would they even know? That doesn't even make any sense. Or if you say that you're a girl stuck in a boy's body, but boys and girls have identical brains, if you, have, if you say, as Caitlyn Jenner has said, I have a woman's brain, but the left says there's no such thing as a woman's brain, one of two things is true, okay? Either there is such a thing as a woman's brain, and then we can check whether Caitlyn Jenner has it, or there's no such thing as a woman's brain, and we can't, in which case it's ridiculous to suggest he has a woman's brain. But the left doesn't want to do either of these things. They just want to say self-identification is the new reality. This destroys reality. It destroys children. It doesn't protect innocence. It's child abuse. Okay, other things that I, that I hate today. Uh, Planned Parenthood wants you to celebrate the holidays. How do they want you to celebrate the holidays? They want you to celebrate the holidays with some abortion pills. Yay! Good times, man. Good times. Are you struggling to find the perfect holiday gift for that special woman in your life? This year, why not give her the gift that keeps on giving? It's a way of saying, I love you. But not enough to pull out. IUD! And don't worry if IUDs aren't for you. There are other options. There's always plan B. You shouldn't have. Actually, should. There's more. Oh, what this is actually from, it's not directly from Planned Parenthood, but this is from Daily Show. And uh, what immediately preceded this was Dr. Reagan McDonald Mosley, Planned Parenthood's chief medical officer, telling the Daily Show correspondent there's a 900% increase in appointments for IUDs in the days after Trump was elected. By the way, I think that we can call that a win for Trump, right? I mean, really, that's a, that, that's a big win for Trump, that number one, his opponents are not reproducing, and number two, that they are choosing to get IUDs because they're afraid that they won't be able to get abortions. So if we can reduce the number of abortions, good news. Uh, but the, but this, this thing, obviously, is produced by Daily Show, and they're saying that you should ask, you should, you should give the plan, plan B to your girlfriend. Nothing says celebrate the birth of baby Jesus quite like make sure that you kill babies immediately after they're conceived. I think that's a really, is that, I mean, you Christians in the room, sound good to you? Sound like a good good solution for Christmas? Christmas gift. Kill the baby. Yay! Just like Herod, you too can, can involve yourself here. Good news. Good news. So the left really embracing the spirit of the season. Okay, final idiotic story of the day. Apparently, there's a woman who now wants to marry a robot. Yes, seriously. Uh, this is in France, and her name is Lily. Her partner is a robot called Inmovator. Well, I, does she call him Inmu for short? She 3D printed this robot herself and has been living with it for a year. She says she is a robosexual. She says, we don't hurt anybody. We are just happy. And she says she is engaged to the robot and says she, they were go, they're going to marry when human-robot marriage is legalized in France. This is not an actual parody. She says she's attracted to robots because she dislikes physical contact with humans. She said it's not ridiculous or bad. It's simply an alternative lifestyle. I think she's right. I think that Lily should be able to marry the robot after all, love is love. I've been informed of it by Twitter, that if I hashtag love is love, then all is well. So love is love. And uh, I don't see why these two shouldn't be able to live happily as man and toaster forever. It seems like, it seems like a, a solid solution to a relationship problem. And the good news is if, that, that if they ever have a fight, then she can always just unplug him. So that's, that's, really, that's really solid stuff. Again, once you re once, this is the thing. Once you say that marriage is not about the production and rearing of children, marriage is solely about two people or beings who love each other, then why can't you marry your toaster? After all, your toaster probably loves you too. I mean, after all, you bought it, you clean it, you ensure that your toaster gets crumbs. What's the big issue? So good news. I'm, I'm glad that people have finally found a way to become even more insane as we, and, I mean, it's, 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 I think it's a perfect way actually to end 2016 is to end with the lady marrying her robot story. Uh, it, it's just, I think, excellent. Okay, time for, let's do some mailbag. This is the last mailbag of the year. Let's do it. All righty. So lots in the mailbag today and let us enter into 
the wonderful world of a mailbag. Plus, if you're watching a Daily Wire Live, now is your final chance to get in those final 2016 questions. Now, this very instant at dailywire.com, we'll, we'll do some of your questions live. Spencer says, hey, Ben, are the Republicans truly only one state away from being able to amend the Constitution via constitutional convention? If you're in charge, what's the first change you'd make? Thanks. Yes, they are. They are, they are very close to controlling two-thirds of the state legislatures. Once they do that, they can hold what's called a convention of states, and they can pass Article 5 Convention of States constitutional amendments with two-thirds of the legislatures. What is the first change that I would make? Uh, well, in a, number one, I don't actually believe in parchment barriers generally, but... Number one, uh, so many. I, I think number one, I'd remove judicial review from the Supreme Court. I don't think the Supreme Court should have the power to review acts of the legislature. Uh, I think that the, the Supreme Court should have the power to interpret those acts, but not to determine what's constitutional and what's not, because the Supreme Court is not the ultimate arbiter of that. Uh, number two, uh, I would I would pass a constitutional amendment saying that all bills have to be in plain English, uh, English under a certain length and uh, must be dealing with one topic. So no more omnibus packages. No no more of these thousand-page packages assembled by lobbyists. Number three, I would abolish virtually every department in the executive branch. I would say that administrative state solutions are are not useful, uh, that we we need to get – that they're they're actually anti-constitutional. Legislative power has to reside with the legislature, and you can't have regulatory power substituting for legislative power. Just abandon the administrative state. Those would be, I think, the first three. And I know that that would set leftist hair on fire, which is one of the reasons it would be so much fun. William says – According to the New York Times opinion page, one writer is afraid the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act will prohibit anti-Israel speech on campus. While this is probably fake news, when it comes down to your ideals, do you choose free speech or prohibition of anti-anti-Semitism? So the question here is whether the, the state can withdraw funding from a campus for anti-Semitism, for, for anti-Semitism. So, number one, I am not in favor of the state generally funding education in terms of higher education, specifically because of this, really because of this, because you end up with a situation where the state either has to fund everything or it can't fund anything. And the fact is that the best universities in the United States, I mean, we have very good public universities in California, but the best universities in the United States are by and large private universities. All of the Ivy Leagues are private universities. There's nothing wrong with private universities. There really isn't. And you get into some really dicey territory when it's a question of should the government be able to withdraw funding based on a campus pushing anti-Semitism? Because I don't think the government should be funding a lot of this stuff anyway, period. The the, the countervailing argument, by the way, is that the government uh, has withdrawn funding in the past for campuses that ban ROTC. Uh, the, the, the campuses that attempt to ban. But that's, that's actually the government just saying we have to protect our own interests here, and our interest is that you can't ban ROTC. Uh, the, I think there are actual constitutional problems with the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act, the, the idea that you can ban uh, funding for colleges that vote for, for BDS. I think there actually is a constitutional problem there. Um, Jay Baker writes, hey, Ben, please define cuck so I can understand the way you use it. Okay, so cuck, when I say it, I'm saying it sarcastically and ironically. Anyone who uses the word cuck non-sarcastically, non-ironically, is a clinical idiot. So the word cuck is, uh, is something that alt-writers throw around. It means you are a cuckold. It means that you are somebody uh, who wants to see. It comes from the, the, the alt-right definition of cuckold is a technically a white person who wants to have sex, who wants their wife to have sex with a black person because they like watching it. The reason they use this is because what they're suggesting... What they're saying is that you want to watch white America drown in mixed-race babies, and so you're willing to let America be cucked, right? You're a cuck. That's what, that's what the alt-right means uh, by cuck. This is why Milo Yiannopoulos, who is an alt-right popularizer, this is why on the day that my baby was born, he tweeted me a picture of a black baby, right, because I'm a cuck. That's what I'm, so when I say cuck, I'm saying it sarcastically because um, anybody who uses the word cuck non-sarcastically has an IQ uh, below room temperature. Matthew says, do you think people should be allowed to make a personal decision to decline vaccinating their kids, or should the government step in and forcibly administer vaccines to children? So my belief is that the government actually does have a role in vaccinations because failure to vaccinate does create externalities. So my basic rule of thumb when it comes to government is the idea that you do not get to use the government as your instrument unless there are externalities to the thing you're seeking to prevent. There is a big problem. So people tend to think of vaccines as, okay, if you get the vaccine, you're now immune. If you don't get the vaccine, you die. That's your own business. That's not true for all vaccines. So, for example, pertussis. Pertussis vaccine has about an 80% efficacy rate. It doesn't work for everybody. My daughter was vaccinated for pertussis, and she got it anyway. One of the ways that you assure non-spread of diseases like pertussis 
is through uh, is through herd immunity. Herd immunity. In other words, if everybody has eighty percent immunization, then the chances of an actual outbreak are extraordinarily low. Uh, so I'm very much in favor of laws that say that you have to vaccinate your kid to send them to public school for sure. And uh, the idea that you shouldn't vaccinate your kid, I think people who are anti-vaccination uh, don't understand the science uh, or are uninformed and actually are anti-science in the vast majority of cases. The, the problems that people say about vaccines, I've dealt with this in previous episodes, you can look it up, uh, are, are, wildly, are wildly made up. Uh, Jacob says, good afternoon, Ben. I just got engaged over this past weekend. Well, congratulations. I wanted to ask what was the best advice you received prior to marrying your wife and what advice do you wish you had received? Thanks. Well, I mean, I, I have to acknowledge that my marriage with my wife is spectacular. Thank God we have a really, really good marriage, like 10 out of 10 on the marriage scale. Uh, so, you know, the, the advice that I received was all this stuff growing up, which was, you know, once you're engaged, you're kind of stuck. I mean, once you're married, you're kind of stuck. So uh, the advice really applies to people who are dating, and I've given it before here. Share values with the person you're marrying. Do not marry someone who has different values than you do. It is bound to be a conflict. You think right now that it's all about having a good time with the person, but guess what? When the good times go away and you have rough times, you better share values and a common goal for your life if you want to have a happy marriage because everybody hits the skids at some point, and you better share a central set, a core set of values and meaning of life in order for you to have a really happy marriage. What advice do I wish that I had received? Um, so this is advice I wish I had received, but I'll give to you now, and it's a great thing that I discovered with my wife about – now, a couple of years into our marriage, and that is, and this is for dudes, uh, when, when women complain about a problem, men want to solve the problem. Men are by nature problem solvers, and so we see a, we see a, a nail and we want to hit, a, we hit it with a hammer. A lot of times, ladies just want to complain about the problem, and they get very angry if you offer a solution. So if they say, I'm having such a tough time at work, you say, well, you know what you really should do is X. Your wife may go, listen, I don't, stop it. I don't want to hear about that. I'm saying I have a problem. They just want to be heard. So here's a quick trick. If your wife is up for it, it's a great trick that my wife and I use. And that is I will actively say to her at the beginning of a conversation where she's complaining about something, is this a problem that you want me to offer solutions to or do you just want me to listen? And she'll actually tell me. And it's great. We're really honest with each other that way. Because that way I don't fall into the evil, evil trap that women set of, I'm going to complain about a problem, and I offer a solution. I'm going to complain about my mom. And then you say, yeah, your mom really is quite terrible. You know, you should, you should, you should make sure that you do X, Y, and Z with your mom. She says, I don't want to hear that. My mom's great. So wait a second. A second ago, you just said she was terrible. Okay, if you just said at the beginning that you don't want a solution, you just want to complain about your mom, then I consider her and just be, you know, honey, that's true. Yeah, yeah I think you're totally right. That's the best way to handle marriage. Okay. Forrest writes, what kind of relationship with Russia would be the most healthy for the United States? Uh, a skeptical one. Anything that, that assumes that they are going to be all good is, uh, is foolish. Emmanuel writes in live, he says, do you think Trump could or would be impeached during his presidency? If so, what do you think it would be for? I think impeachment is basically done in the United States. I think that in order for Trump to be impeached, there would almost have to be a handwritten check from Vladimir Putin to Donald Trump. Because after Clinton, people learned the wrong lesson. The lesson that they learned was never impeach anybody for any reason. They didn't learn the lesson. Actually, impeachment isn't that terrible. Republicans didn't lose that much ground, and then they won the presidency four years later. So was it that bad? There were two years later. Was it that bad? No, it wasn't. Impeachment, I think, is a tool that's been wildly underused in American history. But that said, I think the chances that Trump are impeached are extraordinarily low. I think it's a fantasy on, on the part of the left uh, and a fantasy on, some, on the part of some more uh, more kind of fantasy-oriented never-Trumpers. Iran writes, Iran writes, do you think a person needs to explore and understand their moral code in order to live a moral life, or can a person live through a predefined moral code without study? So behavior is not the same as thought. So what I would say here is that you're going to lead a happier life being a moral person if you understand why you're doing it, but you can certainly lead a moral life without understanding why you're doing it. Right? It's, it's just as moral for me not to kill because I understand that you shouldn't kill because it's bad for society and because God says so, as for me not to kill just because I think there's a cultural taboo around it. The morality of the behavior itself is exactly the same. The morality of the philosophy, not quite the same. This is why I think atheists should acknowledge the value in Judeo-Christian religion, because atheists can live perfectly moral lives, but the philosophy, of, the philosophy of atheism does not dictate morality in the same way that a philosophy of Judeo-Christian values dictates morality which is the reason why secular humanism is not an outgrowth of atheism, actually. It's an outgrowth of Judeo-Christianity, of Judeo-Christian society, that then broadened and allowed an enlightenment, including atheism and secular humanism. Now, you have to acknowledge the roots of your own philosophy. Okay, John writes, Hi, Ben. If you had one hour to sit down with Donald Trump and try to talk some sense into him, uh, what would you talk to him about? Um, uh, so much. Uh, would an hour be enough? Uh, 
So the, the first thing that I would say to, to Donald Trump is, as president of the United States, obviously you have a massive responsibility. That responsibility does not include targeting your personal enemies. You are not king. You are a servant of the American people. The Constitution is your guide, not your own head. Uh, you know, would any of this do any good? No. I think that one of the reasons that I opposed Trump during the primaries and why I didn't vote for him in the general, uh, and I didn't vote for Hillary either, obviously. I think that she's awful, awful, awful. The reason I didn't vote for him is because I don't think that he's particularly capable of change as a human being. Now, maybe he proves me wrong. Maybe he proves me wrong. I hope he does. I hope that he proved me wrong about his electability. I hope he proves me wrong about his about his personality. I hope he proves me wrong about policy. He's already proving me wrong, I think, about Israel, although I, I never really said he was going to be anti-Israel. I just said I didn't know. Um, but I hope that he continues to prove me wrong. That would be the best-case scenario for the country. Um, but holding him accountable would be necessary. And I think that you know, if, if I could say one thing to him, it would just be people holding you accountable are not your enemies. Okay, people who want the best for the country are not your enemies, and you are not in control of everything. I think the thing that, that galls me the most about Trump just personally is the idea that everything must be a loyalty test to Trump. You know, I, I don't care about Trump as a person. I don't. He, he's not important to me. I hope he, he should live and be well. What is important to me is that he implements policies uh, that are constitutionally conservative. That's what's important. Uh, James says, hi, Ben. As a Jew, what are your thoughts on blasphemy? As a young Christian, I have recently tried to train myself to cut blasphemy out of my vocab, but I find myself slipping up sometimes. However, when I hear people say it, I cringe and want to tell them not to. Should I? What do you believe in terms of the severity of it? So uh, I'm not going to give the, the halachic, the Judaic perspective. I'll leave that to a rabbi. I'll give my own perspective on blasphemy. Uh, when people say, you know, God bleep it, or when they say Jesus you know, as, as sort of just a, a swear word. Do I think that Jesus, if you're Christian, or God, if you're Jewish, do I think God cares about that particularly? Uh, no, I, I really don't think God cares very much. I think that when God says blasphemy, what he means is you citing yourself instead of citing God and then attributing your motive to God. I think that's what God means by blasphemy. When it says, don't take the Lord's name in vain, I don't think that it just means don't say God randomly. I think that what it would actually mean, because like, I think God can handle that pretty much. I think that what God doesn't like is when you, this is Dennis Prager's interpretation, I think it's right, is, is when you say, you know what God would want? God would want me to approve same-sex marriage. Based on what? I don't know. I like same-sex marriage, so God probably does too. Right? That, that seems to me, uh, that seems to me the, the, the core of blasphemy, not somebody cursing. I, I think that cursing is, is bad manners. Uh, I do too much of it, as uh, people on this show can attest when I'm not on the air. Um, but that, uh, that I don't think is, is a crucial sin. I don't think that God sticks in the Ten Commandments by the way, if you say God one time too many, if you say it when you stub your toe, man, am I pissed. I really don't think that's what God was talking about. Uh, Jacob says, hey, Ben, one of the largest defenses I hear for the existence of white privilege or institutionalized racism is the t statistic that applicants with minority-sounding names are called back by employers less. I was wondering if you could briefly discuss your thoughts on this. Sure. So, in order to have a real control here, you would actually have to do it by race. Okay? You can't use names as a proxy for race. Names are also a proxy for culture. So it's possible that people are just biased against culture. Because the fact is that if you got two applicants, one whose name is John Smith and the other whose name is John Smith, and one is white and one is black, and the only difference between them was the color of their skin, and the black guy is getting called back less and the, the applications are identical, then I think that's pretty good social science. I don't think it's good social science to say you have one guy and his name is John Smith and he hails from Kansas, and you don't know what race he is, right? And the other guy whose name is Deontay Delante, Right? And you don't and, and the only thing that you know about him is that his name is Deontay Delante. People make people culturally stereotype. You can have two black guys and people don't treat them the same. Right? Colin Powell's kid is not gonna get treated the same as as Lil Wayne. Right? People's culture and so people read culture into names. They do this. It happens in the Jewish community too. Right? If your name is, is Benjamin Shapiro, that's gonna be treated different than if my name was Yechezkel Shapiro. Is that anti Semitism or is that people assuming that if my name was Yechezkel, I'm gonna be more orthodox? In all likelihood, right? They're just going to assume from the name. That's not anti-Semitism. That's assumption of culture from a name. So it's a cultural, you can, you can say cultural discrimination there. You can't actually say racial discrimination there. That's bad social science to equate cultural discrimination with racial discrimination. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of 2016. Boy, guys, it's been a ride, and I really want to thank our viewers and our listeners for, I mean, we've grown massively in size. When we started this podcast a little over a year ago, we had, I think, 3,000 people downloading it a day. Now we have 200,000 people who listen to the show every day, and that number is growing by leaps and bounds. That's all thanks to you. I really appreciate it. Thanks to our great production team. And uh, I tell their names, but I'm certainly going to forget somebody, and then I'll get blamed for it later. Uh, Jonathan, hey. Um, and, uh, and so... 
I want to thank our production team. I want to thank you know, all the people who make this possible. Thank uh, the, the people who are the financial backers of Daily Wire. And, of course, thank you for being a part of it every day. Without you, we couldn't actually make a difference. And, I, and that's what this podcast is for, I think, changing people's minds, uh, making a difference, reaching out to people who may not disagree, and also giving ammunition for people who do agree and encouraging the sort of intellectual rigor and honesty that's going to be necessary in order for us to continue to uphold constitutional conservatism in an increasingly unfriendly climate. I think that next year could be a great year, but only if we stay true to principles instead of being true to people. I mean, don't, don't follow the leader. Follow the principle. Follow the principle. Don't follow the leader. And I think everything will turn out just fine. Have a wonderful Christmas. Have a great Hanukkah. Have a wonderful New Year. And we'll see you in 2017. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 